Now, over the past few weeks, we've learned about the danger of being hypocritical. So this is for those of you who haven't been here over the last four weeks, just kind of giving you some little highlights. So we've learned about how not to be hypocritical. We've learned about judging others. Uh, Two weeks ago, Pastor Tim talked about... um, Jeremiah 29, 11, the passage that says, plans to prosper you and not to harm you. And last week, Pastor Brent talked about the Colossians chapter 1, verse 15 passage that talks about Jesus being the firstborn over all creation. Now, here's what I want to share with everyone, okay? I know that we're a month into this series, but I want to remind everyone that we are all guilty of misusing verses. Okay, so we're all on kind of a level playing field here. And as we've learned over the past few weeks, misusing scripture is something that both Christians and non-Christians alike have been doing for 2,000 years. Now let me offer a little bit of a disclaimer here before I go any farther. There is a bit of a danger in tackling a series like this. When Brent pitched this idea to us, I was like, eesh. Because when a pastor starts to talk about how people misuse verses, it can get very personal, can it? The reason is because verses are often held very dearly by those who have been misusing them. I've been guilty of that. And usually a person has been misusing a verse for a number of years, a long period of time. Just a couple of weeks ago, <laughs> I came home from a Wednesday night, and uh, I'm not going to say who I ran it. Well, it was at home, so <laughs> I ran into, oh boy, I'm already in trouble, see? I tried to couch it in secrecy. Um, I came home, and two people dear to me were engaged in conversation. And I told them both what this series was all about. And when I mentioned the Jeremiah passage that Pastor Tim talked about um, as being probably the most misused verse in all of Scripture, this one person who is close to me, and she loves coming on Wednesday night, she said, oh no, I'm not going now. That verse is one of my go-to verses. It's, my, it's what I claim for my life. I write that verse in my grandchildren's birthday cards. So if that verse is not true for my life today, then what verse can I claim for my life? Gosh. So you can see that being told that a verse that a person has been using for many years has been used in a manner that is not true to the original um, meaning, people can get a little testy about it, and I totally get it. But here's one thing for all of us to keep in mind. That as followers of Jesus, we need to know how to handle God's word. Like Brent said a couple of weeks ago, the handling of God's word is both an awesome and a dangerous thing. It's awesome because God's word is literally life-giving, isn't it? In it, we find hope, we find guidance, and it helps us to figure out this thing called life. It's dangerous because we know all we have to do is look back over the course of history, and we can see that Christians have misused verses 
and taken them out of context as a way of justifying their own behavior or even worse, as a way of condemning the behavior of others. True, isn't it? So, a thing to remember, and I feel that this is so important that it bears repeating. As Brent, again, he mentioned a few weeks ago, he introduced this fancy word called hermeneutics. And hermeneutics simply means to interpret. As Christians, we want to apply good hermeneutics while being faithful to the text and learning how to apply that text to our everyday lives. So the first rule of biblical interpretation is that context rules. If I could write that on a board in big capital letters, that's what I want us to remember. Context rules. When I was in seminary, my profs, they would, all of them, would constantly tell myself and my fellow students, context, context, context. We have to remember that. As a modern-day reader, specifically as a modern-day reader living here in the West, in the United States, it's easy to forget the context that any passage of Scripture was written in. So that begs the question, what exactly is context, right? Well, a few things. Make up context, such as who was the author? Who was the original audience? What language was the author writing in? What was the setting at the time? Was there war going on or was there peace? What was the culture like? Those are all a few of the ingredients, and there's many more, that help to provide context. So it's really important for us to try to understand context as best as we can when reading God's word. Now, the often misused verse that we'll take a look at tonight comes from 2 Chronicles chapter 7, verse 14. Now, before we get to that, let me tell you that both 1 and 2 Chronicles are very interesting historical books. They are books that tell the story of Israel's history. The creators of the Bible Project say that chronicles are intended to tell stories about the past while also providing a hope for the future. Now, this passage uh, is one that we're all familiar with. It's right up here on the screen. It's in your uh, bulletin. And it says this, If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face, and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven, and I will forgive their sin, and will heal their land. Now, just a casual glance, and you can see that there's a lot of good things in that passage, right? Seeking God's face, turn from wickedness, God will heal our prayer, or hear our prayers, he will forgive our sins, he will heal our land. Who doesn't want any of that, right? I mean, this is good stuff. The problem comes when Christians, specifically Christians, those of us here living in the United States, try to apply this particular passage to what we are living through today. And this passage was never meant to be any kind of formula for living today. Now, this is about the time when things kind of get a little testy. 
Are you feeling, anybody feeling a little tension by what I'm saying? If you are, that's okay. The person that I referenced earlier, my close family member, if she was here right now, she'd stand up and say, how can you say that verse can't be applied to our life today? Because that verse was written to a particular group of people at a particular time, at a particular place in history. It was never meant to be a promise to any Christians living anywhere in the world today. Now, let me explain. Like I said earlier, what's usually missing in a verse like this is context. So let me offer a little bit of background to our passage to gain a little better understanding of what we are reading. Second Chronicles was written about 450 years before the birth of Christ. The writer of Chronicles was writing about a time period that took place 950 years before the birth of Christ. So the context that was happening at that time is that Solomon is now king. And if we were to read 2 Chronicles chapter 6, we, we would see that Solomon had just finished building the first temple. Now, by the way, let me just kind of take a little breather here. A good tool for us to remember when reading a passage is to try and trying to help understand context is to read the chapter before and the chapter after. Not to just pick one verse out of anything, but to get context, the chap, read the chapter before and the chapter after. So Solomon is king. He's just built this magnificent structure that's going to house the Ark of the Covenant. In fact, it's going to house the very presence of God himself. And in chapter 6, Solomon is consecrating, he's dedicating, he's blessing the temple. And in so doing, he offers this very eloquent prayer to God. Then we come to chapter 7. Now let me read the passage, picking up in verse 12. It's on the screen to help us kind of gain a better understanding here. Then the Lord appeared to Solomon by night and said to him, I have heard your prayer and have chosen this place for myself as a house of sacrifice. When I shut up the heaven and there is no rain or command the locusts to devour the land or send pestilence among the people, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. Now my eyes will be open and my ears attentive to prayer made in this place. For now I have chosen and sanctified this house. My name may be there forever and my eyes and my heart will be there perpetually. I don't know about you, but do you find it interesting that God is telling Solomon that the people of Israel are going to sin before they have sinned? See, God is responding to the sin that the people of Israel have yet to commit. 
when I shut up the heavens and there is no rain or command the locusts to devour the land or send pestilence among my people. See, God is sending those afflictions upon Israel because of sin. In spite of that, he tells Solomon, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. Then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sins and will heal their land. The point in all of this, gang, is that this verse was written to a specific people at a specific time. In spite of that, there are things in this passage that we can pull out and apply to our lives today. So the first one, and it's in your outline, is that God wants us to humble ourselves. God wants us to humble ourselves. The Apostle Paul, in writing to the church in Philippi, he says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves. Tim McGraw, the famous philosopher, In 2015, he had a hit song, right? Always stay humble and kind. That's about as good as my singing gets. There's something about humility that is very attractive to us, isn't there? The famous Bible scholar, M.R. DeHaan, he used to say, humility is something that we should constantly pray for and yet never thank God that we have. I love that. Paul goes on to express on three different occasions examples of humility. In 1 Corinthians, he says, I am the least of the apostles. In the book of Ephesians, he says, I am the very least of all the saints. And in 1 Timothy, he says, I am the foremost of sinners. Paul understood his need for God's grace. And because of that, he had a posture of humility. This was a complete 180 from how he used to live. As a member of the ruling religious elite of the day, the Sanhedrin, Paul was afforded a lot of clout amongst the people. And whatever clout he had was rendered completely useless on a road to Damascus as he came face to face with the risen Savior. On that road, Paul was humbled. And in his humbleness, his life path totally changed. Humility is not only attractive to us as people, but is also attractive to God. David tells us in Psalm 51, 17, a broken and contrite heart, O Lord, you will never ignore. Having a contrite heart is having a humble heart. Humility It's present when we admit our mistakes, when we seek forgiveness for wrongs that we've done for others. That takes humility. Again, as we read in the book of Isaiah, God tells us, these are the ones I look on with favor. Those who are humble and contrite in heart and who tremble at my word. Humility is one of those things we should all have in our lives as followers of Jesus. A great modern example of this happened on January 15th, 2009. U.S. Airways Flight 1549 took off from LaGuardia Airport and within just a few minutes had ran into a flock of geese. 
the captain of the aircraft, Captain Chesley Sullenberger, had a quick decision to make. Return to the airport of origin or land in the Hudson River. We all know the rest of the story, right? In the river they landed. 155 souls were saved. All because of the quick and decisive actions of Captain Sullenberger. He was rightly hailed as a hero. And when asked a question regarding what happened that day, he simply said, one way of looking at this might be that for 42 years, I've been making small, regular deposits in the bank of experience, education, and training. And on January 15th, the balance was sufficient so that I can make a very large withdrawal. A humble answer from a very humble guy. Now, the opposite to humility is pride. And pride is something that not even God himself can stomach. But he gives us more grace, James tells us. That is why scripture says God opposes the proud, but shows favor to the humble. Pride is what led to this whole notion of sin in the first place and led to Lucifer's fall from from grace. I hope you're getting a clear picture that God wants us to humble ourselves. The second lesson we can take from this verse is to pray and seek after God. Pray and seek after God. Prayer isn't obvious, isn't it? And I'm gonna talk more about that in just a minute. But what does it mean exactly to seek after God? What does that mean? I think that seeking after God means that God has priority in my life. We all know that we we make time for things that are important to us, right? We're all busy. We all have things that are vying for our attention. What we prioritize in the midst of our daily lives tells us, as well as telling others, what is important to us. An example is when I was dating my wife. I was intentional in getting to know her. I carved out time that was just for her. I listened to her as she shared her life with me, and I did the same with her. It was a mutual transaction. And in the process of us getting to know one another, we got to know one another intimately through spending time with one another. It was very deliberate on both of our parts. I think it's the same thing with God. So it begs the question, how do we seek after God? Well, prayer is certainly a big part of that. So is being in community with other uh, Christians, learning from people who are older and wiser than we are, reading God's word, of course, on a frequent basis, is vitally important in seeking after God. Other disciplines that we can implement in our lives, like fasting, journaling, lecto divina, whatever it might be, those are all practical ways that we can seek after God. Basically, seeking after God is pursuing those things that allow us to grow in our faith and knowledge of God. Thirdly, 
We have to turn from our wicked ways. This turning from our wicked ways is called repentance. It's a very churchy word that in a nutshell simply means change. It means to change direction, to turn away from the sin that hinders us, the sin that binds us, and to not just turn away from that sin, but to turn to something better, to turn toward God. The idea here is that there is hope in repentance. There is hope in change. Billy Graham, you may have heard of him. He says, repentance is not a word of weakness, but a word of power, a word of action. It is not a self-effacing emotion, but a word of heroic resolve. It is an act that breaks the chains of captive sinners and sets heaven to singing. A repentant sinner is someone who is very dear to God. To illustrate this point, Jesus tells a story. Whenever Jesus wants to make a point, he, tells, he told the story. The reason he did that is because he knew that we as people, we love a good story. This story is captured in the book of Luke. And it's about a shepherd who had 100 sheep, but he loses one of them. And after a period of searching, the shepherd finds the lost sheep. Jesus, in describing the joy of the shepherd who found his lost sheep, also describes the joy of God when a sinner repents. There will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 just persons who need no repentance. Oswald Chambers, in his classic book, My Utmost for His Highest, he says this about repentance. I love this. Conviction of sin is one of the most uncommon things that ever happens to a person. It is the beginning of an understanding of God. Jesus Christ said that when the Holy Spirit came, he would convict people of sin. And when the Holy Spirit stirs in a person's conscience and brings them into the presence of God, it is not that person's relationship with others that bothers him, but it's his relationship with God. Against you and you only have I sinned and done evil in your sight. The wonders of conviction of sin, forgiveness and holiness are so interwoven that it is only the forgiven person who is truly holy. He proves he is forgiven by being the opposite of what he was previously, all by the grace of God. Repentance always brings a person to the point of saying, I have sinned. The surest sign that God is at work in his life is when he says that and he means it. God will never ignore a repentant heart. The fourth point in your outline is that God hears our prayers. Being a follower of Jesus should mean that you and I are constantly talking to God in prayer. But I don't know how many of you are like me and wonder if God is actually up there listening to my prayer, right? 
I have wondered about this so many times because I have not received the things that I prayed for. So in my minuscule brain, I'm thinking, if I didn't get what I prayed for, that must mean God wasn't listening, right? Anybody feel the same way? Well, we know that's not true. We read in our passage tonight, God told Solomon that he heard his prayer. And this isn't the only example of God hearing and answering prayer in, in, in Scripture. We go back to 1 Samuel, where we read about this young gal named Hannah, who had no children. And a woman back in those days, uh, her value and worth was based on how many children she had. So having no children, eh, One day, Hannah cries her heart out to God and says, God, if you will bless me with a child, I will give him back to you to live all the days of his life in service to you. Nine months later, a little guy named Samuel shows up on the scene. Samuel becomes one of the great prophets of the Old Testament. We read in 1 Kings chapter 17, the prophet Elijah goes to the widow woman's house. And during his visit, her son dies. Elijah carries him upstairs, and he cries out to God as he lays on top of him and asks God to bring life back to this child. And the the passage says, and the Lord listened to the voice of, of Elijah, and the child came to life again. So there's no question from reading Scripture that God hears our prayers. And I've confessed from this very stage that I've struggled with truly understanding the importance of the discipline of prayer. It's an area where I'm constantly being challenged and I'm trying to grow in this area. One of the things that I've learned in regards to prayer is that prayer isn't just about me talking to God, but is also listening to God so that I can hear him. Lately, I've been reading this book on spiritual formation called Mansions of the Heart by R. Thomas Ashbrook. I highly recommend it. And in it, he shares a time of his own disillusionment with prayer. And he sought out the advice of a monk, Brother Boniface. Brother Boniface told Ashbrook that prayer is all about listening to God Certainly what God has to say to us is more important than what we have to say to him. I've been trying to do less talking in my prayer time and more listening. I don't know about you, but I take great comfort in knowing that the God of the universe with all the things that he has to manage is available to both hear and speak to me through prayer may not always get what we want, right? What we ask for. But that's where the exercise of faith and trust comes in, doesn't it? You and I can't see the bigger picture. But God can. And we have to have faith to believe that God's plans are bigger than ours. God hears our prayers. The final point in our outline is that God forgives our sins. This is what the good news is all about, right? 
I mean, it's the most fundamental ingredient of the gospel message is that God offers forgiveness for our sins. Why? Again, Dr. Ashbrook, he says, God's goal for us is simply a restored relationship of love with God through Jesus Christ. The whole gospel message is around redeeming that which was lost. It all started in the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve, they decided to go off and do their own thing. The selfish desires of their heart led to a fractured relationship with God. And from that time forward, God set about redeeming that broken relationship, which culminated with Jesus of Nazareth taking the penalty of our sin, which is separation from God. He took that penalty and died on the cross for our sin. He died on our behalf. 